Turn your copy of God's Word this morning to Romans chapter 16. We find ourselves this morning in the final chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Have you ever thought about your greetings of other people? I I would guess that over the last year you have simply because for, I guess, pretty much all of us, the way we greet people has been a little different, right? We don't shake hands as much. We don't hug as much. But there's a lot of different ways that we greet one another. And and they all have different kind of messages. I don't know, ladies, I don't think you do this as much, but for us men, there's the head nod, right? And it's either kind of up or down, and they mean two different things, right? It, up is kind of like, what's up, you know? How's it going? And that may be to somebody that I don't really know, you know? Or there's the down. How's it, how are you? You know, a little different meaning, a little different way, maybe even different age, age group, demographic there on the what's up or the how's it going, right? Okay? There's different greetings. We shake hands. Some of you are huggers. When you shake hands, you don't just leave it at that, but you shake hands, and the shaking of hands is only a step to pull a brother in, to hug them. It's a trick, right? And so you deceptively, or maybe not deceptively, but you sneakily go in for the hug by feigning the outstretched hand to shake. There's lots of ways we greet one another. It even means something different in the people in your life. It doesn't matter what's going on, the situation in our world. I may not hug you. There has not been a day that I have not been willing and wanting to hug my family. We hug those we love. We see them, those that we haven't seen in a long time. We hug. Even in the midst of the pandemic, we've hugged one another, haven't we? We have. And it's been okay and right. We greet one another. You think of greetings of the people that you haven't seen in a while. Some of you have loved ones living overseas, and you want to greet them. And in the time being, when you send them messages, you greet them, or you tell them of your love for them, how much you miss them, right? We greet, and we commend people. That's what we find Paul doing here in Romans 16. As we come to our passage today, 16 verses 1 through 16, this is not a passage that most people memorize. I would probably be safe to say that none of you, including myself in here, have any part of Romans 16, 1 through 16 memorized. It's probably not on that list. It is not a leading passage for popular sermons. It's not one that you go, oh, they're going to be expounding Romans 16, 1 to 16 at this conference. Let's go to that conference and see what it's about. It's just not there. But... Romans 16, 1 through 16, as we've said before, is the Word of God. And that means it is beneficial and we can learn from it. At minimum, what I would say is when we come to Romans 16, 1 through 16, what it tells us is that the book of Romans was written to real believers in a real church by a real man writing a real letter. It's it's real. It's true. It's something that truly happened. It is a historical account. These people really lived. They really carried out their faith. They really partnered together. They really sacrificed for the sake of the gospel. 
Another thing that it reminds us of is that this letter was not written to a group of high and lofty theologians or professors sitting in their ivory tower. It was written to people just like you and I. People gathered, worshiping the Lord, living out their faith, normal people who had jobs throughout the week, who had families and small children and came into their gathering each week tired and exhausted and with questions and weights of life and anxieties and and struggles. And they come and they gather and Paul writes them this letter. It's written to real people, real people, real believers, just like you and me. So let's read Romans 16, 1 through 16 this morning. Paul begins, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Synchrae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Aristobulus, I don't know. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, when we come to this passage, Paul does two things, essentially. The the first thing he does is is in verse 1 through 2, he commends Phoebe, the carrier of the letter, the one that will bring them the letter. He commends her to them. And then in verses 3 through 16, he just greets the believers, over 24, he, he lists 24 different believers here, and he greets them, but then he also includes others that are in households or families, so he greets at minimum 24 believers. And so what I want to do is, is I want us to look at first, who is Phoebe in verses 1 and 2, and then next, I just want to get us thinking about some gleanings that we can take away from the greetings and the way Paul does that. So let's ask that question first, who was Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. Outside of this passage, we really don't know anything about the identity of Phoebe. We don't have any other references to her, and so everything that we really know about her is right here in verses 1 through 2. But what we have to understand is that she was obviously a faithful believer who Paul loved and trusted because he entrusted with her the letter to the Romans. This is a significant deal. This is important. This is big 
for Paul to trust her so much that he would say, I want you to deliver the letter. And so he calls her when he starts writing. He says, come into our sister, Phoebe, a servant of the church. And then he goes on to say uh, down in verse 2 that she has been a patron. So he calls her a sister, a servant, and a patron. So there's three things that we learn about her right there. What that tells us is that Phoebe was a believer who lived out her faith through serving in the church and supporting others in need. She was genuinely walking in a manner worthy of Christ. She was living out her faith in a way that honored the Lord and in which a way that caused Paul to commend her to the church. Now, the question comes up in our day, and I honestly don't know that this question would ever come up in Paul's day. But the question in our day that arises when you read this, and that many of you may have heard or talked about, discussed, is this. Did Phoebe hold the office of deacon in the church? Was she a deacon? This says that Phoebe was a servant of the church at Synchre. And so that question comes up. Was that, does that mean she was a deacon? The, the Greek word there for servant is diakonos. It's the same exact word for deacon. It's the word that's used Elsewhere in Scripture, it says deacon. If you look, more than likely, your copy of God's Word, if you look at your footnotes there, more if it's translated servant, then in the bottom, in the footnotes, it will say or deaconess. Okay? The word there is the feminine form of deacon. Right? In the New Testament, this word is used to describe servants in general. It's even used to describe Jesus in the way he served. It's just a, a general term and general word for servant. It is also used to describe the official office of deacon in the church. When you read pastoral epistles and Paul talks to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy about the role of the deacon, right? The, the role of the deacon, it is the same word, diakonos. It's used generically as one who serves. It's used specifically as the office in referring to the office of the deacon. Now, we look at the text and we look at the Greek scholars come around, they widely hold that this is a reference to Phoebe being a deaconess, that she is a lady deacon, a woman deacon, a female deacon in the church. And the reason they come to that is because it says Phoebe, a servant of the church at Syncre. There's a distinction about that, that she is a servant of the church at Syncre, that it is a specific place that she is serving. And so your scholars, if you're concerned about scholars such as Calvin, A.T. Robertson, Tom Schreiner, Doug Moo, John Stott, Leon Morris, Cranfield, and Bruce, all of these guys and many more would come down and say, listen, this is a point where we would understand that Phoebe is a deaconess. She is a servant of the church there. Now, in saying that, we have to acknowledge the fact that, that many Southern Baptist churches do not have female deacons. Why is that? Why, why is it that, that most, not all, but most Southern Baptist churches don't have lady deacons? Well, the reason for that is because in most Southern Baptist churches, the deacon functions more in the role of the biblical elder or pastor. That's why. Because the deacon in many Southern Baptist churches is functioning with a position of leadership and a position where they are exercising authority. That's not the description that we see in Scripture. So when a deacon is functioning more like a, in a, in a pastor-elder position where they have authority and they're leading, then 
Southern Baptist churches say, no, we are not going to have lady deacons. Because in 1 Timothy 2.12, we read there that Paul prohibits women in the church from exercising authority or teaching authoritatively over men. Verse 12 of 1 Timothy 2 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Okay, this is in the context of the church. This is not talking about society as a whole. It's talking about in the context of the church. In a local church, Paul says, I, I don't permit a woman to teach a man to exercise authority over a man. And so when that is the case, whether whatever it is, then we understand Scripture to say, no, that is not that leading and exercising authority is the role of men. It's just how God's economy works, that there is to be male leadership in the church, in the home. So when men are leading and in authority, or those in elder positions are leading with authority, they are to be men. But what we have to understand here is Phoebe is not called a pastor. She's not called an elder. Phoebe is called a deaconess. She is called a servant. So when our ecclesiology and our polity, our, our doctrine of the church and our practice as a church, when those things are functioning as the New Testament describes where elders, pastors are leading and exercising authority and deacons are serving, then you have the situation that is what we see here for Phoebe, that she is a deaconess in the church. That needs to be set up. In that context, that's where Phoebe lied. Many churches in the Southern Baptist Convention aren't there. So when you ask, well, should we have female deacons, it comes down to not a question. This is important. It does not come down to a question of, are women as important as men? That is not the question. Men and women are both created in the image of God and both have equal value and dignity before God. There is never a point at which I am more important than my wife. And there's never a point in which I am more important than any of you ladies in here. That's not the question. The question is, how do we carry out our roles within the local body? That's the question. And God has structured the local body to be such that pastors and elders who teach authoritatively and lead authoritatively are to be men if it's over men, and that those who serve can be men and women. And so our ecclesiology, our polity, our doctrine, our practice should conform to Scripture, and then things are okay and right and well. Okay? We tracking? Right? Understand? All right. It's a big question in Southern Baptist life when we come to there. So verses 3 through 16. What can we glean then from the greetings? What can we learn from Paul's greetings to the people? We, we really don't know anything about most of the individuals here. There's three individuals that we know something about beyond what was said here by Paul. The first two are in verses 3 and 4, Prissa and Aquila. You, you may know, you may remember that elsewhere in the New Testament, we read of Priscilla and Aquila. It's the same individuals. They are mentioned six times in the New Testament. They're mentioned in Acts 18, 2 to 26. They're mentioned also in Paul's greetings in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and 2 Timothy 4, 19. But what I want to simply draw your attention to is Acts 18, verses 2 through 19. We learn of the hospitality and the fellowship of Priscilla and Aquila. Prissa and Aquila. 
We, we learn there that, that they were Jews who had been commanded to leave Rome because Claudius had commanded that all Jews were to leave Rome. And so they fled, they left Rome, and they were tent makers. And so Paul came into contact with them. He was a tent maker as well. And because they did the same things, they came together, they worked together, and they hosted Paul. He stayed with them in Corinth. So in Corinth, while Paul was going about doing his ministry, carrying out his work, it was with Prissa and Aquila that he stayed. They later sailed with Paul to Ephesus, and it was in Ephesus that they parted ways. And so this is why now you have Paul sending greetings to them. So we know that Prissa and Aquila had this, this hospitality to them. They were hospitable. They helped a brother in need, and they were also workers who worked hard in the gospel. But what we later understand and learn, and we will read this passage, is in Acts 18, 24 to 26, that Prissa and Aquila were doctrinally sound. They were solid people who had an understanding of Scripture. Hear, hear what we read there in Acts 18, verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, do you remember Apollos from 1 Corinthians? Where Paul, or 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about uh, Apollos waterings. There's different people who, well, you, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Paul, and he goes, listen, I don't, I'm not worried about that, right? Apollos was doing work there. This is that same Apollos. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you have Apollos, a, a man who's respected, right? A respected man who is doing work in the church and says he speaks eloquently, he's competent in the scriptures, but something he was teaching needed some clarification. And so Priscilla and Aquila come alongside him and they explain to him better the way of God. They understand. They explain to him more accurately. I, I read this and, and think, you know, perhaps this is why Paul in, in Romans 15, 14, do you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about what Paul was satisfied about the believers in Romans? Do you remember the three things he said? He said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and what? Able to instruct one another. And do you remember we talked about that, that word, able to instruct one another, is carries with it the, the connotation or the, the, the idea of admonition, of correction, rebuking, that, that you would correct one if, if they're a little off. Perhaps this is one reason that Paul writes that, because he knows, he's seen that there are times where Prissa and Aquila have corrected Apollos, and he knows that there is that maturity in the church. That is certainly just speculation, but it would certainly make sense. The, the next individual that we know something about, know some background about, is Rufus, right? Rufus, he has to be from the south, right? We read his word or his name and we think he's definitely from southern Italy. But here's what we know about Rufus. Does anybody remember where Rufus is talked about in Scripture? I didn't really either, all right? Mark 15, verse 20 to 21, we read this. And when they had mocked him, talking about Christ, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from 
the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross, carry the cross of Christ. So we, read, we learned two things here. I think our speculation is right. We said Rufus is from the south. He's a country, country boy. And it says Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, right, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So we learn here is that, that in Mark 15, when they lead Christ to Golgotha, when they lead him up the hill, and he's been beaten, he's been scorned, and he can't carry his cross, they find a bystander who is in from the country, Simon the Cyrene, and says, Simon, come and carry his cross. Simon picks up his cross and, and carries the cross of Christ up the hill, and we don't know how this happened, but at some point in history, Simon went from the one carrying the cross of Christ to the one who would pick up his own cross and carry it to follow Christ. Christ did a work of salvation in his life, and the power of the, the cross was displayed in Simon's life such that he came to Christ and his children came to Christ. His wife came to Christ. We see now that Rufus is in Rome, he's living in Rome. This is significant. Why? Because history tells us that Mark writes his gospel from where? From Rome to who? The Roman believers, the Roman church. And so it would make sense that, that Mark in Mark 15 points out that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why does he point that out? Because Rufus is one of the believers in Rome. And now Paul is writing and greeting Rufus and describes him as one of the chosen in the Lord whose mother had treated him like her own son in the past. Now, can you imagine for a moment Paul's conversations with Rufus and his mother? I, I just have to imagine that, that Paul, the first time he meets him, is saying, listen, I, I, oh yeah, you know, they're talking about Christ and the gospel. And Paul says, listen, you're not going to believe this. Let me tell you how I came to Christ and and it was on the Damascus Road, and he tells them about that and, and everything. And they're going, wow, wow, that's amazing. Man, God is amazing. And then perhaps Rufus' mom says, I'll never forget the day when we, we had to go into to Jerusalem, and, and there was all this commotion, and all of a sudden the Roman soldier just snatches my husband Simon by the arm and says, carry that man's cross. And we didn't know what was going on, and Simon had to carry this man's cross up the hill for this man to be crucified, and it turned out to be Jesus Christ. I'll never forget that day, Paul. And Paul's going, get out of here. Are you serious? Simon Carey, the cross of my risen Lord, the one who came and changed my life on the Damascus Road? You've got to be kidding me. Oh, man, those conversations over a cup of coffee would be quite a sight, I think. So outside of that, what can we take from these greetings? I think there's, there's five observations that I would make that, that we can learn from and glean from these greetings. But before, before we do that, we need to consider what Paul does not recognize. We need to think about the things that Paul doesn't point out in the greetings. See, the modern church is great at recognizing things that really aren't very biblical. They're great at elevating people and putting people in positions based on qualities that have nothing to do with biblical godliness, really. But I want you to notice some things that Paul doesn't point out about these people when he greets them. He, he never points out the one or recognizes the one who is the best athlete in Rome. He, he never says anything about the one who is the most influential businessman in Rome. He, he never says a word about 
those who are the best parents in Rome with the best kids in Rome. He, he never even says anything about the, the four that are the best worship team in Rome. He doesn't compliment the best and most read author in Rome. He, he doesn't say anything about the most dynamic speaker in Rome who just woos the audiences. And he doesn't say anything even about any of them being the most astute theologian in Rome. He writes and he recognizes faithful followers of Christ who love God well and love one another well. That's who he greets. And there's five things we can glean from them. Here's the first one. That the Christian is the Christian life is not a solo endeavor. The Christian life is not a solo endeavor. As great a man as Paul was, he did not go about the Christian life alone. He did not walk alone. That's why in 15 verses 30 to 33, we talked about and we saw that Paul, in the midst of everything that he was going through, in the midst of all the challenges, he comes and he asks the people to please pray for him. Why? Because he knows he needs the body of Christ. He knows he is not in this alone. It's why he wrote in Romans 12, verses 4 through 5, the passage we meditated on, that for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul understood that the Christian life was not a solo endeavor. He greeted these individuals because these individuals had been in the trenches with them. These individuals had treated him like one of their own children. These individuals had sat in prison cells with them, and so he remembered them because they meant something to him. He was not trying to live out his Christian life in isolation or in a vacuum. He was living it out among the people of God, and they meant something to him. The second thing we glean is that we understand from Paul's words here that the hardworking Christian is the God-glorifying Christian. The hardworking Christian is the God-glorifying Christian. Five times in this greeting, this set of greetings, Paul describes individuals or lumps of individuals as those who are fellow workers or as those who work hard. You see that littered all throughout the greetings, that, that Paul speaks highly of those who are workers, who worked hard in the ministry. We hear the echo of what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, when, when he's given his own testimony, talking about the power of the resurrection and God's work in his life. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. He says, listen, God's work of grace in my life is not in vain. And let me tell you how we know it's not in vain, because I work hard for the glory of God. We see all throughout Proverbs, if you just take a survey of Proverbs, we see all throughout there Solomon constantly teaching and, and, and instructing us to, to work hard, to not be lazy, but to work hard like the ant and the, 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 the fruitfulness of the one who works hard. The Christian is to be one who works hard. Paul does not write and commend and, and greet those who faithfully come week in and week out and warm a seat in the church. He greets and commends those who actively work for the glory of God and gospel advancement. That those who are carrying out the ministry, that are hard workers, that are fellow workers. Those are the ones that Paul commends, that Paul greets, that means something to Paul. The hard working Christians. 
The third thing we glean is that ministry often leads to sacrifice and risk. Ministry often leads to sacrifice and risk. We, we commented briefly on this last week, and, and we look at it again today because there is a certain amount of risk involved in gospel ministry at times. We have to understand that. We cannot be a people who approach our faith in fear of risk. We can't. If we are going to advance the gospel, if we want to see God do great and mighty things, we have to be those whose faith is greater than our fear, who don't try to mitigate every ounce of risk and try to eliminate every ounce of risk. It can't be done. There's always going to be risk. There is. That's why we read in in 16.3 that Prissa and Aquila, Paul says, they risk their necks for my life. Why does he greet them? Because not only did, that, did they work alongside him, not only did they take him in, but they literally risked their necks for him. There was a time where they put their lives on the line for Paul. And Paul says, please tell them hello. Please greet them with a holy kiss. I miss them. He says in verse 7 of Adronicus and Junia that they were imprisoned with Paul. That they, they sat bound with him. Again, we don't know much about them, but maybe that's how they came to know each other. Maybe they came to know each other because they were talking to each other through the walls or, or they were stationed around, shackled around a, a, a big room, sitting there. They strike up a conversation, and why are you here? Well, I'm here because I'm preaching the gospel. And Hadronicus and Junia go, get out of here. We are too. There's risk. They meet each other. They are imprisoned with one another. Do you, do you realize that the level of risk we're willing to take is revealing of how much we value something? Do you realize that? Like, how many of you would, would go, well, I'm not going to risk that to protect my spouse or to protect my children. Oh, that's too risky. I'm not going to run out in the road to get my kid out of the road. They're out there playing in the middle of 27. Ooh, that's risky. I'm going to sit back here and watch. No, none of us would do that. If I see Kendall out in the middle of 27, I don't care what's happening. I'm out there. I'm going to get her. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to risk it all. If I have to just shove her out of the way and get hit, I'm going to do that. Why? Because I value that little girl. I value her greatly. How much do we value Christ? How much did John Payton value Christ when he moves to live among cannibals? And he leaves all of his family, all of his hometown, all of his church. And they say, you know you're going to go and be eaten. And he says, listen, I would rather go and be eaten. I would rather be worm food than to sit back here and not go and tell them about the gospel. How much did he value Christ? How much did did Jim Elliott and his friends value Christ? When they went and they shared the gospel with people that they knew were going to come at them violently more often than not. They knew the reputation of these Indians. They knew. How much did they value Christ? Well, they valued Christ enough that they all gave their life for Christ. How much do the believers value Christ that fill the pages of the Voice of the Martyrs magazine that you can get every month? And you flip through that and you see pictures of people with their face blacked out because they can't be identified for their own safety. But yet they gather week in and week out to worship or they walk miles and miles and miles to gather and worship Christ. How much do they value Christ? How much does the believer in Africa value Christ who will literally walk 
two, three, four, five hours just to get to be among a body of believers to hear the Word of God teached and preached and to pray together, and then they walk that same distance back just to get home. It wasn't a convenience thing. It wasn't something where they said, whoa, well, I'm willing to risk a little bit, but not too much. No, they're willing to risk it all. Why? Because they value Christ. How much do we value Christ? These believers had to value Christ. They were in prison. They were risking their neck for Christ. The fourth gleaning that we can take is that God's people are a family. God's people are family. We talk about that a good deal, but we see here Paul using the word sister, brother. He describes Rufus' mom as one who has been a mother to him as well. God's family, or God's people are a family. That's why we, we read in Matthew 12, 46 and 50, when, when Jesus interrupted and he says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. A man came and told him, but, uh, sorry, but he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Now listen to this. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, there is a familial side to being a part of the people of God. We are the family of God. That's why Solomon wrote in Proverbs 18, 24, that there is a man, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sits closer than a brother. I, I know that this church is filled with people who stick closer to me than a brother. They would stick through me and have stuck through me through thick and thin, through some of the most difficult and trying times of my life. Some of you have walked shoulder to shoulder and never batted an eye. You never blinked. And we've been through some difficult days. Why? Because we're the family of God. That's why Paul describes us in Ephesians 2.19 as the household of faith after he gets finished talking about how the power of the gospel and the work of Christ is to break down every wall, every barrier to break it down so that those who were aliens, those who were separated have been now brought near, that we're no longer strangers. We are one. We are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He says, we are part of the family of God. We must not lose sight of the fact that as the people of God, we are the family of God, and we must treat one another as such. How do you expect to be treated in your family? The church should mirror that. The final gleaning that we can take from this passage is that the cloud of witnesses is made up primarily of ordinary Christians. The cloud of witnesses is made up primarily of ordinary Christians. Don't you find it interesting that of the 24 plus names that are mentioned here, I guess actually I didn't count Phoebe, so 25 names mentioned in this passage, plus those that are grouped in them, their families and others, we only know anything about three of them. See, we read... Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, where he goes and talks about all the saints that live by faith, and we read those, and so many of them are people that we just cling to, and we have Sunday school lessons about, and they're, they're just people we look to as great towers of faith, and we get into Hebrews 12, 1, and we read this out right out of Hebrews 11, and we go through all those saints and how they lived out their life of faith. Hebrews 12, 1, he says, therefore, since 
we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we can so often read that and go, oh, wow, this cloud of witnesses, yep, Moses and Abraham and Joshua and Jacob and Isaac and Noah, and, and we just think about all these great towering figures. We may even go through history and think about Augustine and Charles Wesley and John Calvin and Martin Luther and, and just whoever, Billy Graham, whoever you think is just this great towering figure in the Christian faith. But listen, we need to understand that the cloud of witnesses is made up much more of just ordinary people like you and me, people who persevere and live out their faith that are regular Christians, that are ordinary Christians, that aren't famous, that they simply persevered in living out their faith. Why is that important? Because it's important because you're sitting here and you're going, I don't know if I can make it anymore. I've, I've got small children, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I'm exhausted, and I just can't do it. I don't know if I even have time to breathe, much less study the Bible. I don't know if I'm going to make it to tomorrow. Well, guess what? There are millions of other moms who have persevered through that. And they're surrounding you as a cloud of witnesses who said, I've persevered through the faith. I've endured that. And I love Christ and I'm worshiping Christ. Persevere. Or maybe you're the one that says, I'm depressed and I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. There's no way out. There's nothing I can do. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I don't know what else to do. Well, guess what? You're not alone. There are many, many Christians who have gone before you who have walked that road. And you and I don't know their names. But they've walked the road of depression. And they've clung to Christ. They've looked to Christ. And he's lifted them up. And they've persevered in Christ. Or perhaps you're the one who says, I can't beat this addiction. Every time I turn around, it, it, just, it just kicks me right in the teeth. I'm tired of it. I'm thinking about just giving up. Maybe I just give up and give in. It'd be easier. I'm tired of the fight. I'm tired of the struggle. I'm tired of the failure. Well, guess what? There are many believers, faithful believers, who have fought that addiction by the power of Christ and have looked to Christ and been strengthened by Christ and depended on the grace of Christ and walked in Christ and persevered in Christ through that addiction. Or maybe you're the one that's like, I can't deal with the chronic pain anymore. I can't deal with it. I can put on a, a pretty face on Sundays and, and look nice, but I can't keep getting up every morning, and as soon as I open my eyes, I feel the pain. I can't do it anymore. I'm struggling with bitterness. I'm struggling with anger towards God. I just can't do it. I'm tired. I'm done. Well, you need to know that there is a cloud of witnesses of people who have gone before you that have battled chronic illness who have battled the pain, who have fought through that and clung to God and suffered well for the glory of God and persevered in Christ. You need to know those things. Maybe you're grieving over a rebellious child, over a wayward child who's just gone completely the opposite direction of all that you taught them. You battle the discouragement, you battle the heartbreak, the grief, the embarrassment. And you need to know that there have been parents and parents and parents before who have walked that same path, who have cried those same tears, who have prayed those same prayers, and have persevered in Christ. And they are a part of the cloud of witnesses. 
They're one of the Adronicuses, Junius. They're one of the Herodians, Aristobuluses, Urbanuses, Bobs and Scotties and Jennifers. We don't know their names. There will be a day that we stand shoulder to shoulder around them, around the throne, and we worship. And we look and we just give the head nod. We made it. Persevered in Christ. May not be a famous author. May not be a famous speaker. But by the grace of God, we persevered in Christ. And here we stand, laying our crowns before the King of Kings. People of God, be faithful where you are. Persevere in Christ. Live your life in a manner worthy of His calling on your life. Let's pray. Father, we praise You. We worship You. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for passages that that can be so instructive and encouraging to us, but yet so simple. And God, I, I don't know what my brothers and sisters in this room are struggling with. I don't know what they're battling. I don't know whether they're discouraged or whether they're on a mountaintop. And I pray that wherever they are, that they would draw near to you, and that they would be faithful to simply live out their faith in a way that glorifies you. And that they would persevere through the difficulties of life for the glory of your name and the advancement of your good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Christ that we ask these things today. Amen.